0: Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. All right, so last week uh, we began a series uh, called Who's Your One? Uh, We're leading up to our our six-year anniversary, uh, really trying to encourage you and trying to help you, uh, not just encourage you to invite someone, uh, cause you know, we, we, churches do that all the time and we do it all the time, especially during our, 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 you know, what we call, we call anniversary, others call homecoming. There's no right or wrong way to call that. Uh, but you know, we try, Hey, invite people. And we do want you to invite people because we want to have a good day. we want to have a good crowd. We'll be a blessing to people. But really I'm trying to show you that inviting people to church is not something we just try to rev up for. Uh, for an, a special service, for worship, for an invite-your-one service, for an anniversary service, for a, you know, a, a Christmas cantata or whatever we do. It's something that we are commanded to do as believers to help not only be a disciple, but to help make disciples of other people. Uh, so today we're going to look at one of the most famous parables in the Bible to really show us what it means to be a disciple maker. So look in uh, Luke chapter 10, verse number 25. The Bible says, "And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, "Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" Now, uh, if you know anything about lawyers, you know there's no good lawyer. They're, they're always they're, they're terrible. They're, they're liars, they're cheats, they're sked. Screen- this is not a lawyer like we think about a lawyer. This lawyer is an expert in the Mosaic law. So he knows what the Bible says about eternal life. He knows what the Bible says. He, he's trying to trap Jesus, but he does ask one of the most important questions that really every religion uh, has to answer. How do I get to heaven? How do I earn eternal life? And again, he's not asking sincerely. He's not curious to see what the answer really is. He, he's trying to trick Jesus so that they can accuse Jesus of blasphemy, have him arrested, and really put, be done with. So look at verse number 26 at Jesus's answer. And he said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? Uh, And he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, thou hast answered right, do this and thou shalt live. So Jesus says, well, you tell me you're an expert of the law. What does the law say? And then God says, Well, it says, I got to love God with, with everything I have, all my heart, all my mind, all my soul. I've got to love God a- a- incredibly and passionately and devote my entire life to Him and then love my neighbors as I love myself. And Jesus says, Hey, you're right. Do that. Now, that do is a pretty big do. You know, okay, yeah, love God with everything you have and love your neighbors as you love yourself. Simple. Seems simple, but it's really, it's really not. You know, He says, Make God. The highest passion of your heart. And look, all of us here, we are here on Sunday morning. Uh, we all love God. Is there anyone here that loves God? All right, we're going to try this differently. Somebody mentioned this to me, and I used to, we, we've lost a lot of our ameners, so here's what we're going to do. If you love God, say amen. Do you love God? alright you All right. Y'all can say that any time during the message, all right? Anytime during the sermon, if I say something you like, you can say amen. If I say something you don't like, you can say oh me. I don't care. But you can be a little more vocal here. Let me know what, you know, give me some feedback here. But anyway, we love God. uh, But do we, okay, but do we love God like the Bible commands us to love God? You know, he says, you know, we should love God. He should be the highest passion of our life. God should be who you think about first and most in your life. You should care more about pleasing God than pleasing anyone else in your life. When, you're, when your mind is idle, our thoughts should turn to God and thinking about Him. And then Jesus says, Love everyone else like you love yourself. Now we say that, and look, that's even our motto here love God, love others, serve others. You know, love God as you love yourself, love others like you love yourself. But I don't think we really understand what it means. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. That means you care as much about your neighbor's needs as you care about your own needs. It means that you rejoice in your neighbor's happiness just as much as you rejoice in yours. You worry over your neighbor's future as much as you worry over yours. You, you weep over their sorrows as much as you weep over theirs. And here's the thing. You either naturally have love for somebody and something, or you don't. I, I love April. No one has to command me to kiss April. No one has to command me to eat steak. I love steak. There's not going to be, thou shalt eat steak. Done. <laughs> you put some, some sauteed mushrooms on that puppy... You make it rare, look, and if you're like, well, I like my steak, well done. You are not right with God, all right? You don't like steak, you like shoe leather. Uh, and if you've got to douse it with A1, you cooked it wrong. No one's got to tell me to cook steak, to eat, eat steak. I love steak. No one has to tell me to love and root for UVA, even though it's hard. It is so hard right now. But I still love them. I was listening to a podcast the other day uh, uh, by Bill Simmons. Anybody know who Bill Simmons is? He's a sports writer. Used to write for ESPN. uh, Now he he writes for himself, but he's a sports writer. And he was talking to these other guys uh, and about their childhood. And both of them uh, had been their parents had been divorced when they were eight or nine. But they're talking about not their parents' divorce, but who they root in sports. And he loves uh, the Red Sox, and it's hard to love the Red Sox. He loves the Bruins. And it's hard to love the Bruins. He's like, it's amazing. to. He said, it's amazing to me. People will divorce a human, but they will not divorce a sports team. A human. You can say, I'm done with you. You're out of my life. But a sports team can hurt you year after year after year after year. And you will not give up on them. And that's how I feel about UVA. No one's got to command me to love UVA. I wish there was a command not to. I wish I could figure out a way not to love them. But I do naturally, when you love something, it just comes naturally to you. Look at verse number 29. But he, talking about the lawyer now, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, when it talks about justifying himself, what it really means when you look at the the Greek language, he's trying to find a way out. He's basically asking, what is the bare minimum I have to do to obey this commandment. He feels the pressure of the commandment so he's he's looking trying to limit its scope to what he actually has to do. Now, here's the thing. His main concern is not okay, Jesus, who's my neighbor so I know who to love? His main concern is I need to look out for my own soul. I need to make sure that I'm doing just a bare minimum but so that I'm taking care of. You know, when you try To earn heaven like this man's trying to do. Everything you do is for yourself. When you're trying to earn heaven, you go to church for yourself. You give of your finances for yourself. You help others for yourself. You love others for yourself. Charles Spurgeon tells a story uh, about a, a beloved king and a carrot farmer. Uh, the story said, it goes, he goes, this, this farmer, he's plowing his field, he's, he's, he does carrots, and he's harvesting his carrots, and he finds this huge four-foot-long carrot. So he digs it up, he takes it to the king, and he comes before the king's throne, and he says, King, you know, I'm, I'm just a lowly carrot farmer, but, you know, I, I don't have much. But I was harvesting my crops, and I found this carrot, and this carrot is just, it's, it's too magnificent to be enjoyed by anybody but a king. And king, I I love you. I'm devoted to you. I just want you to know how much I appreciate everything you've done for me and appreciate uh, how much I love you. And so I want to give you this carrot as a sign of my devotion to you. The king is just in awe. Not by the carrot, but by the the act of generosity. So he he asked the the carrot farmer where he lives, and the carrot farmer tells him, and the king says, well, you know, I, I own all the land around your farm. I'm going to give it to you because of your love for me. Quadruples this guy's farm overnight. Now there's a, a nobleman in the court who's watching this and he thinks, man, if, he's, if he does that for a carrot, what's he going to do for a real gift? So he scours the, the, the countryside and he finds the greatest horse in all the kingdom. And he brings the, course, the horse to the king and he says, oh king, I found this horse and it's just it's so majestic, so beautiful. I knew that only a king could sit on it. I want to give this horse to you, king, as a sign of my love and a sign of my devotion to you. The king is very wise and very shrewd, and so he looks at the horse and looks at the nobleman and says, thanks. Of course, the nobleman's shocked. He's like, wait wait a minute, you gave a a land to a guy who gave you a carrot, I just gave you a horse. And the, the king, understanding that this guy was kind of confused, explains to him, says, yesterday... The carrot farmer gave the carrot to me. You gave that horse to yourself. You were trying to get something from me, so you tried to basically bribe me. So the problem with religion is if I love God, if I love others, I am doing it to earn something. So I'm really just loving me. Now, we all know there's nothing we can do to earn heaven, to earn salvation. That's the whole point of the Bible. That's the whole point of the gospel. We could never earn salvation. We could never earn heaven. So Jesus came and did for us what we could never do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died in our place, was hung on the cross, and he absorbed the wrath of God for my sin and for your sins. Completely sinless. He took our punishment, was buried, and rose three days later to, to redeem us to God the Father. Jesus, he, showed, he tells us that he did for us what we could never do. So Jesus, thank you, tells the story... To kind of explain to this man, but also explain to us who your neighbor is and what it really means to love your neighbor. So look at verse number 30. And again, this is probably, you've probably heard this story before. If you've heard it, if you've been in church, you've heard it. If you've not been in church, you've probably heard it as well. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him and departed him departed leaving him half dead now the the path from jerusalem to jericho was literally down it was a 17 mile hike that dropped about 3000 feet in elevation through the mountains so there's a lot of rocky outcroppings you know you're you're going through some some pretty big ravines and there's a lot of places for thieves to hide and it was a perfect place for thieves to hide and rob unsuspecting travelers. Happened all the time. And so Jesus is telling this story that people understand what's going on. Then look at verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he bypassed him on the other side. Now look, we tend to be pretty hard on the priest, right? His job is to take care of people. And he sees this guy bloody, beaten on the side of the road... And just walks right by him. Doesn't stop to check his pulse. Doesn't stop to say, hey man, are you okay? Doesn't go back to get help. Just sees him and and goes on. But here's the thing. Jesus' audience would have recognized the priest as a really a sympathetic character. Again, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very dangerous path. It was literally called the pass of blood. So because of the danger... The, if you 're on that road, you did not stop for anything because what if this guy 's faking it? What if he 's acting hurt to get you to stop so then you can he can mug you so it 's a very dangerous place to stop to to care about people, but also the priest is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. he is leaving Jerusalem, where he has just been ceremonially cleansed and purified, so he can go to Jericho to perform his religious priestly duties he doesn't know this guy's dead or not if he touches a dead man even to see if he's got a pulse he's got to go back to jerusalem cleanse himself take seven days to get clean to go back to jericho to do his work so he really he can't afford to, to stop he if he stops and helps he's going to put himself in danger He's going, if this guy's dead, he's going to put himself in, you know, a really inconvenience. He's got to go back for seven days. It's going to cost him money. It's going to cost him time. So we, we like to, to harp on the priest and to really bang But honestly, most of us probably would have done the same thing. And look, I'm the same way. Today, if I'm driving down the road at night and I see a pregnant woman on the side of the road with a broken down car, I'm not stopping. Why? I listen to crime TV and crime shows. I know she's just there to trick me so they can skin me alive. Now, I'll, I'll call 911 for as I'm passing by. I'm calling the cops for you, but I ain't stopping. Because I'm not, I don't, I'm, it's scary. And so this guy's like, look, we, we got to give this priest a break about why he did not stop. Uh, so look at verse number 32. And, uh, and likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him And passed by on the other side. Again, we kind of give the Levite a hard time, but the Levites were of the priestly clan, but they were not priests. They worked in the temple, but they were not the the high priest or the the priest that did the work, but they were part of the the priestly clan. So they had to keep themselves clean as well. But when you really look at the wording of this in the, the Greek, it gives the indication that the Levite saw the priest pass by. You know, you can see for a couple miles down this trail, so the Levite may have seen the priest pass by, and he thought, well, if, if he didn't stop, I'm not going to stop. You know, it, you know he, he, he had enough wisdom to keep on going, so I'm going to have enough wisdom to keep on going as well. So, you know, he's like, if the, pre, le, the priest didn't do it, I'm not going to do it either. It's not safe. Then look at verse number 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion for. On him. Now, Samaritans and the Jews were enemies, brutal enemies. The Jews considered the Samaritans unclean. The, the Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile, and so the Jews looked down on them. It was, it was a lot of racial uh, issues, but they, they hated them because of that. And the Samaritans weren't any better. They hated the Jews. The Samaritans said that they were the true people of God. That they were the true chosen of God, not the Israelites. And they said that because they lived in the land of Joseph, that they were truly God's people. They even built a separate altar to God in Samaria. And they would worship there, and they would sacrifice there. And any Jew that went down to Jerusalem to worship and sacrifice, they would, would, uh, would, would make fun of. But they also would attack them uh, on, when they were headed down to Jerusalem. So there's racial strife, there's extreme violence on both sides. The Jews had a saying... The only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. It's kind of what I say about copperheads. Not all snakes. Used to be all snakes. I'll leave a black snake alone. I'll leave a garden snake alone. A copperhead, I will chase that thing down and burn it with fire. Because uh, the only good copperhead is a dead copperhead. Same thing with spiders. Spiders don't need to live. Uh, I hate spiders. Uh, but anyway, so they're like, the only good Samaritan is a, is a dead Samaritan. And the Samaritans weren't better. They would rob the Jews as they were going to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, in fact, one time, this is historically uh, recorded, the, on the night before Passover, the Samaritans went to Jerusalem and threw dead pigs over the temple wall to desecrate the temple. So, I mean, that's an epic prank right there. They're just splattering pig guts all over the temple of God so the Jews couldn't worship. So they, they hated each other. So this Samaritan stopping to help this jew is a huge deal. Look at verse 34. And he went and he went to him and bound up his wounds pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him and on the morrow when he departed he took out two pence and gave it them to the host and said unto him take care of him and whatsoever thou spendest more when i come again i will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was the neighbor unto him? That fell among the thieves, and he said unto him, Him that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. So he picks this man up, the Samaritan, he picks up this man who he's supposed to hate. This man probably hates him, but he picks him up, and again, he's in a dangerous spot. So he's putting himself in danger to stop, bind this man's wounds, give him first aid, make sure he's not bleeding, make sure he's alive, puts him on his own animal takes him to an inn, gets him a hotel room, takes care of him that night. The next morning he's got to go, but he, he pays for the man and takes out a lot of credit to say, look, I'll, I'll pay anything you need to take care of this man. I'll, I'll pay for it when I get back. I'm good for it. Just do whatever need to be done. And then Jesus asks him, says, which one of those guys is his neighbor? Now the man, the lawyer, says the one that showed mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Because he hates Samaritans so much. So he says, the one that shows him mercy. And Jesus says, well, then go and do the same. So we're going to look at a few things this morning. The first thing we're going to look at is, number one, what does it mean to love our neighbor? What does it mean to love our neighbor? We're going to see three things. We're going to answer three questions to see that. first question we're going to ask is, number one, who is our neighbor? Who's your neighbor? All right, well, let's go home now. All right. People already answered. Yes, everybody. We're going to show it quickly. Now, the Samaritan and the Jew, they could not have had less in common with each other. To meet this man's need, the Samaritan had to cross an incredible social barrier. Here's the thing. We naturally help people who are like us. We naturally help people that we have things in common with. If I'm driving down the road and I see two cars with a flat tire, one's a UVA fan and one's a tech fan. Tech fan's on his own. I'm helping the UVA fan. (laughs) Say, why him? Because we need so much more than tech fans right now. We are are so persecuted, so we need all the help we can get. Uh, But we help people we can identify with. Jesus says to help those that we have little in common with. Even those... That have wronged us that means the person that you barely know is your neighbor the person who sits on the opposite political aisle than you is your neighbor those suffering because of their mistakes your boss who is a jerk and takes advantage of you, the immigrant that is fleeing persecution, the illegal immigrant that crossed the border illegally to get here. Every single person is our neighbor. So who's your neighbor? Anyone and everyone is our neighbor. Here's the second question. When do we help our neighbor? Well, according to Jesus, we help whenever we see a need. And look, we come up with all kinds of reasons why we don't want to help someone who is in need. You know, I'll help a, a true victim. But people who are victims of their own choices, well, they made their bed. They can, they can lie in it. They reap what they sow. I'll help, I'll help someone who's really been abused, but someone who's, you know, they, they bring it on themselves. I'm not going to do that. Now, the Samaritan had plenty of reasons to believe this Jew got what he deserved. Jews were cruel to the Samaritans. They were racist to the Samaritans, but the Samaritan, he reaches out in mercy despite all the reasons that he could have ignored this situation. Jonathan Edwards wrote in the book, The Duty of Charity, he gave reasons why most Christians do not help other people. He said the first reason we don't help other people is we only help people when they are in dire need. You know, they're not really, it's, they they could use some help, but it's not it's not life or death right now. You know, it's not, it's not severe right now. That violates the law of loving others as we love ourselves. Because look, you don't only help yourself when you're about to die. No. You help yourself when the smallest little problem comes up. You don't wait for the need to get extreme before you jump in and help yourself. So why do we wait for the need to get extreme before we help other people? We come to our own aid long before the situation gets out of control. The second excuse, he said, is we look at people and say, well, they bought their trouble on themselves. You know, they reap what they sow. You know, here's the thing. Jesus relieved the misery that you brought on yourself. You did not deserve mercy from Jesus. You, and look, when I say you, I'm saying me too. we, deserve hell period there's no getting around well i'm a good person doesn't matter well i give to the child doesn't matter we deserve hell jesus had no reason to show us mercy but besides love and he did so why do we look at other people and say well they you know they, they they brought that on themselves Why should we help them? Proverbs uh, 3.27 says, "Withhold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is in the power of thine hand to do it." Most believers we hang on that part to whom it is due, because we look at some people, bad people, and think they're not due anything. You know, drug addicts. What do they do? Sex workers. What What do they do? You know, convicts. What do they do? You know, they're not due mercy. They've not done anything to, to deserve it, so why should we help them? See, God didn't feel that way about me because I'm not doing any good either. And neither are you. But God showed mercy to us. Instead of loving others like you love yourself, we should love people like God loved us. Here's a third thing. And Majesty, you want to click over through here, buddy? Here you go, next one. How much do we help our neighbor? We are to love our neighbor enough... To take their burden onto ourselves. The Samaritan put himself at great personal and financial risk to help this man. The third excuse that Edward says we use to not help people is we can't afford to help people in need. And look, I get it. I can't afford to pay attention, let alone give of my own finance or my own resources to help somebody else. But Galatians 6.23 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul doesn't say bear one another's burdens as long as you can afford it. We are to give. We are to get involved in other people's problems until it is a burden to us. See, why would we do that? Because saving your soul was a burden to Jesus. He had to leave heaven. He had to live a perfect sinless life and he had to die in your place and suffer three days in hell and agony and suffering and pain and rise again to redeem you to God the Father. It burdened him. Why can't we be burdened to help other people? Why can't we be burdened to go above and beyond for others? See right to give until it hurts us. That's what happens in this story. This Samaritan he takes on this Jew's burden as his own. So following Jesus means that you feel like you're shouldering the burdens of other people. C.S. Lewis said this. The only safe rule when it comes to giving is to give more than you think you can spare. Give until it hurts. Look, and look, again, I'm not trying to make you all feel guilty or bad. I know some of you give. A lot of you give financially. A lot of you give and it's, it's difficult. I It hurts to give. I get that. But some of you you give and you give a lot, but it doesn't really cost you anything. Or maybe it's not finances. Maybe it's your time. You, You give of your time, but only time that doesn't really inconvenience you, doesn't really hurt you. Our giving should be to the level that we experience pain because of how much we give. That's the core of following Jesus. Believers and churches all over the world, we face the same temptation as the priest and the Levite. We all do our religious duties. We go to church. We read our Bible. We pray. We give every once in a while. We tithe. We volunteer. But when we look at our lives, there's very little of giving away of ourselves. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 23. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, faith; these ought you have done, and not to leave the other undone. He's like, look, guys, you're giving, you're giving a lot of money. You're you're giving of your spice cabinet. Please do not tithe garlic powder. All right, don't come here with your spice cabinet and say I'm just obeying Jesus. That's what they had back then. But anyway, if all you got spice and you want to, that's fine. But anyway, he's like, you're doing all the religious duties, but you're missing the point. You're missing what the purpose of following Jesus is. The heavier part of the law is loving your neighbor as yourself. And that isn't easy. We are to pour out our resources. We are to pour out our time for others, no matter who they are and no matter what they have done. Second question we need to answer is why? Why do we love our neighbors? This question started with an expert of the law asking, what do I got to do to earn eternal life? And of course, the answer is nothing. The whole point of the gospel is Jesus did what we could not do. He came for us, lived for us, died for us, and rose again for us because we could never earn salvation. And that's why Jesus puts an interesting twist on this story. He makes the Samaritan the hero. He could have made another Jew the hero, he could have said, well, the priest went by, the Levite went by, but then some other random Jew stopped by and saw this other Jew and helped him. He could have made the Samaritan the victim and made the, another Jew the hero. Oh, this Samaritan was dying, and a Jew helped us. A Jew helping a man, that's amazing. He wanted to use a character that was so different from the lawyer as he could get, and there's a reason for that. In this story, we are not the priest. We are not the Levite. We are not the Samaritan. We're the guy who's been beaten half to death. We're the victim. Jesus is the Samaritan who went across the boundaries, who helped his enemy. We were his enemy. We hated him. We rejected him. He put himself in danger. He took on our suffering on himself. He poured out his resources for us. So Jesus is asking the lawyer, What if you were bleeding to death on the road, and the only hope that you had was an act of grace from an enemy that didn't owe you anything? After they saved your life, how would you change? How would that change you when an enemy, who had no reason to help, gave everything to save you? Jesus isn't giving the lawyer a a new rule as much as he's trying to make him aware of a new reality. We were saved by God who has every right to consider us his enemy. When we understand that, we become givers of radical grace to everybody we can. Look back at verse number 33 of Luke chapter 10. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. The Greek word compassion there is nizamaya. It's a nizamaya. It's a great word, not because of how it sounds, but because of what it really means. It literally means moved to one's bowels, to have the bowels yearn. Say, so what does that mean? We've all seen these commercials, you know, for people who are suffering with, you know, I, uh, IBF uh, irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease. Anybody ever dealt with something like that? Last year, I did. I, I thought I did. But for years, I thought I had IBF. I mean, I would, I would eat dinner and then immediately I need to be near a bathroom or bad things are going to happen. It wasn't a like, oh, I, maybe I can. No, no, no. It's not, I'll wait a while. I can, I can. no, it's, I got to take care of this now. I didn't have IBF. I had my, my appendix wrapped around my colon trying to kill me. Finally got that fixed, and so that's that's fine with. But I remember those times where I would, you know, we'd be at home, or even worse, I'd be at a restaurant with April, and I'd eat a burger. And as soon as I finished the burger, I'm like, "Okay, we got to go home, or I got to go back here." There's no question about. It's like I have got to take care of this. That's what the word compassion means, because this culture they believe the bowels were the seat of mercy and love and pity. So what Jesus is telling us here is this type of compassion isn't an action you choose to do. It's an emotion you have to do. You can't help it. There's no choice. You're not like, well, maybe I'll do it later. No, it's like, I have to take care of this right now. I have to help this person. I have to love this person. I have to get involved in this situation right now. There's nothing I can do about it. God wants people who love like he loves, who respond like he responds. We cannot, and that can't be produced by the law. It can only be produced by experiencing the radical grace God has given us. See, we love Jesus because he first loved us. We don't naturally love him. He loved us, and because of His love for us, we love Him, and that moves us to love others. Jesus, you know, we all know the Golden Rule. It's kind of in here, but it's better in Matthew. But Jesus gave us the Golden Rule: Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Paul expanded on that in Ephesians 4:32. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake. Hath forgiven you. See, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Paul says, do unto others as Jesus has done unto you. Treat other people like Jesus treated you. The gospel should give us uncontrollable impulse to be generous to everyone we can. See, we don't love our neighbor because we are trying to earn salvation. We love our neighbor because we've experienced salvation. Here's the third question. How do we love our neighbor? How do we love our neighbor? This is, the, this is the one that really matters. We know who to, now we know how to. Uh, first thing to how to love our neighbor, you have to have courage. Fear is one of the biggest deterrents that kept the priest and Levite from getting involved. They were scared for their safety. Maybe they were scared for their reputation, but they were scared. That's the biggest reason most of us don't reach out like we should. You know, what effect will this have on us? What effect will this have on my family if I open up my life and I open up my home to other people's problems? We tend to let people into our lives who are safe, who can benefit us or benefit our family in some way. But that cuts us off from the mission of God, and it will ultimately destroy you. See, we've all bought into the notion that our home is our castle. It's our personal space that needs to be protected. And look, it is. I'm not saying don't protect your house, sleep with your windows open and your doors unlocked and, you know, just a sign, welcome, anybody who wants to come on in. I'm not saying that. Because, look, I protect my house. My house is lit up like noontime in the middle of the night. I got six dogs that just are alarm systems, but they're deterrents. I have firearms. Someone makes it past the lights and makes it past the dogs. They're going to have a bad night. I'm going to protect my home. So I'm not saying just don't you know, let anybody in, but our, you see, that, that assumes, when we say you know, our personal space needs to be protected, it assumes that the greatest need of my family is their safety. And it's not. The greatest need for me and my family is to experience loving and serving like Jesus. Love takes courage. It takes being willing to inconvenience yourself because that's what Jesus did for you. Second way we love our neighbor, number two is make sure you have margin in your life. Now the second biggest obstacle to loving our neighbor is we, most of us, we lack any room in our lives to get involved. When we read the story of the Good Samaritan, he had a lot of reasons he could have ignored this man. The priest and Levite, they had a lot of excuses not to help, they were too busy. They were on their way to serve God and had to remain faithful to the task at hand. This guy was a distraction to what they were supposed to do for God. And look, Leviticus 19 gives us the original command to love our neighbors uh, as ourselves, and it shows us how. They were told, when you are harvesting your field, leave the corners ungleaned, and anything you drop in the field, leave it there for the poor. So that means if you've got an apple orchard, you are picking your apples, you leave the corners of your apple field, all those trees, unpicked, and if you're picking apples and you drop an apple, you leave the apple for the poor people. And look, that cost, that's apples you could sell. That's apples you could use to feed your family. But it was they did that to, to love their neighbor. It cost them money. They were leaving perfectly good crops in the field, crops they could sell, crops they could use to feed their family. But they had to leave it there to love their neighbor. So how do we apply that today? Because as far as I know, none of you have fields that you're harvesting and now look if you've got a garden maybe leave some of for well here you leave it for the deer and the crow and the, the the squirrels but anyway so how do we apply that to our lives today we do that by ruthlessly looking at our schedule and our budget to make sure we have some room in the corners of our fields and we've left some on the ground so that when we see a need we can help see the most of us Uh, The problem most of us face isn't a desire to help people. We just have no room to, to help them. We have no room to get involved. Our budget is so tight. Our time is scheduled down to the last hour. So we couldn't help if we wanted to. So make sure you preserve room in your life to say yes to some opportunities to help other people. Even if it means saying no to a good opportunity but it's not the best opportunity. You know, sometimes that means maybe saying no to having your kids play a different sport all over the country, all over the, the, the county, where you got one kid playing soccer over here, one kid playing basketball over there, one kid playing football over there, and you're, you're running around so busy that you can't do anything. Sometimes, look, several years ago, Alexis was taking gymnastics and she was really good at it. And they asked her to join their travel team. And, I mean, April said no, for a couple reasons. $2,500 to get her involved in that, and no, uh, but also they traveled on the weekends. Every Saturday and Sunday, we'd be traveling to, to Richmond or D.C. or Nor- Nor- Norfolk, and you know, I'm like, well, we, we can't do that because you know, I'm the pastor. I got to be here every weekend, right? But even if I wasn't the pastor, we weren't going to do it. Why? There's, there's more important things than her being on the gymnastics team. It's her falling in love with Jesus, being faithful to church her seeing that god is important to us it may mean saying no to taking a week long a beach vacation every weekend or saying no to a two-week vacation next summer so you can take your family on the missions trip to west virginia to be a blessing to other people look family vacations are important do not get me wrong they are vital the bible talks about being with your family Scientists have said we all need vacations. Family vacations are important. We take one every single year. don't know if you've noticed, we always take one towards the end of August, beginning of September. Why? Well, because we homeschool and we can is one big benefit. So when your kids are in algebra, our kids are on the lake, uh, that helps. They love that. But another reason we do it that that late in the year is because I want my kids to be involved in ministry activities throughout the summer. I want them at summer at Bible camp. I want them at prayer advance. I want them on missions trips. I want them to experience what it means to walk with God and love God and serve God. Yeah, and things are important. Memories are important. But what's more important, a, a good memory that my kids have every summer or my kids falling in love with Jesus and serving him with life? That's the most important thing I can do for them as a, fam- as a father. Not, not take them on great vacation. Look, say, why well, do I don't want to go to Disney World? We're never going to Disney World. Ever. Say, why? I ain't waiting in line for 46 hours for a, a small thing of French fries that cost me a kidney and a lung. <laughs> Number one, uh, I'm just not doing it. Number two, it's too expensive. But look, it's like, yeah, Disney World is great. If we ever get the opportunity, if ever get the opportunity, I will take them. But I'm not going to not... Make sure they're serving. I'm not going to say, well, we can't, go to, we, we can't go to summer camp and you can't go to prayer advance and you can't go on a mission trip because we're saving for Disney. No. If Disney happens, great. We're saving for a teen Bible camp. We're saving for prayer advance. We're saving for a mission trip. Because those are the most important things To teach them to love like Jesus loves. You know, you got to look at your life. What is more important, your kids having experiences or your kids falling in love with Jesus? You can't love your neighbor if you don't make sure your life is set up to do it. The core of our mission is in this story. We are to love God and love our neighbor with everything we have. You know, I know I told you in this story, you're the victim. But who do you live like? Do we live like the priest and the Levite, too concerned with our own issues our own problems our own concerns to get involved are we living like the samaritan willing to risk it all to show the same love that jesus showed to me to others who need it as well let's pray heavenly father Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.